I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word this morning back to Ephesians chapter 5 as we will look at the first seven verses this week. When you find that also once again turn back to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1 we will read the first nine verses of Leviticus and then move in to Ephesians chapter 5. As you can tell by the title of the sermon this morning, we continue with this theme that Paul has set before us of putting off and putting on, putting off the old and and putting on the new. This morning, we specifically look at this with regards to our holy allegiance. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the, the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Therefore, uh, and now over to Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be honest before you this morning. 
we listen and as we reflect and consider your words of life, your words of wisdom, but also your commands that are empowered for us through our union with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see and savor Christ. Help us to smell the pleasing aroma of who Christ is for us that we might indeed live as pleasing aromas to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I have written, I think, 27 different introductions to this sermon. And I still haven't picked one. And that is because this is a sermon that is fraught, fraught with temptation, especially with the regards to my and your hypocrisy. This is one of those texts that some, that some preachers like to come across because it provides us such an obvious platform in order to talk about how worldly the world is. It allows us, it, it even requires us to point out how defective the world is, especially with regards to morality. And it's a fun one to talk about because there is, there is such an opportunity for us to then sit back and feel comfortable in our chairs because we are not immoral like the world. So yes, let's hear about how immoral they are so that we can feel a little better about ourselves. And that will be the temptation for some of you this morning. I guarantee you, though, I'm going to do my best not to allow that to happen. Some of you, though, are going to hear this sermon, and the temptation for you is, is to retreat into the darkness of the recesses of shame and guilt within your hearts and within your minds. Because the topic is going to hit too close to home. And it will be a topic that you will be tempted to think is disconnected from the gospel and only connected to the law. And you will take this as an opportunity to flay your backs as in some form of penance before the Lord because of either past sin or present struggle. but I guarantee you I'm going to do my best not to let you do that either. Now, many of you know by this point, the ones who have been here since I arrived, that I typically do not preach about the world because I'm not shepherding the world. I'm shepherding you. And the calling I have as your pastor, is to help 
guard you from allowing the world to creep into your life and to try to help guard this this congregation from the world creeping into us as a local church. And one of the reasons that is so vital and so important for us is not simply about the basis of morality. It is very specifically tied to who you are in Christ as saints serving in the temple of the Most High God as ambassadors and participants in the peace making ministry of Jesus Christ. Your salvation as an individual is tied to the redemption of a people who exist in this world as redeemed for the purpose of revealing the superiority of the manifold perfections of the worth of the triune God above everything else in this life and we do that through worship we do that in our discipleship and we do that in mission and if there are two things that will completely undermine the ministry of a pastor of a local church of you as an individual in Christ It is failure in the area of purity and contentment. To put it in another way, immorality and covetousness. Sex and money. If if you're older, you can immediately bring to mind failures of Pastors whom you may have known personally or stories you may have heard about in the news. Where those are the two things. Typically one or the other. Sometimes they hit the jackpot and hit them both. And you know the testimony that that creates. The problem. The problematic testimony that that creates for the ministry of that church. And the Apostle Paul has set before us this extravagant grace of Jesus Christ so that we would become so enamored with God that we would respond appropriately to this extravagant grace by giving ourselves in love back to him, to one another within these walls, and to our neighbor outside. All as a way of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and reveling in his goodness, reveling in his grace, glorifying and enjoying him. I think we have something about that in our doctrinal standards. That the totality of how to understand our purpose in life is to glorify and enjoy God. But the temptation of every one of our hearts are to glorify and enjoy things that God has made and to cut him out of the process. 
This is what the Bible means by idolatry. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. Now you'll notice here in the text that the editors of the ESV made a decision to refer to covetousness as idolatry. But in the Greek text, it has set before us, I think rather clearly, that grammatically what we are to see is this moniker of idolatry is very specifically pointed at immorality and covetousness, impurity and greed. What is actually unclear is whether or not the word that is used for covetousness here is speaking with regards to money or if it's being used generically to just speak of lust. But how often do the two go together anyway? And this was especially true for the Ephesians to whom Paul is writing. The, these Ephesian believers are, are people uh, uh, who have come, some of them have come out of Jewish backgrounds. And many of them have come from Gentile backgrounds and they're struggling within this church between these two historical identities that they they are implementing in their lives rather than allowing their new identity in Christ as those who have a shared life in Christ as those who have been built together into the household of God in which they are being built upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles and the prophets into the temple of Jesus Christ where the church made up of Jew and Gentile are the temple presence of God here in this world very clearly argued for that in chapter 2. What he's doing here is reminding them of that with regards to both backgrounds so they might come to understand the absolute necessity and importance of pursuing purity and contentment in the Lord as an offering of themselves through the offering of Jesus Christ. When we look at the setting of Ephesians, the, the, these Ephesian believers, they lived in a society that was so much more graphically and openly immoral than ours. And that immorality and that greed were very specifically tied to worship. Now, before the Jewish believers would step back and start pointing fingers, we have to remember what we read about in the Old Testament, and that is that the Jewish people didn't have a very good record on their own with regards to morality and with regards to contentment, with regards to a holy allegiance to the Lord in response to his redeeming them out of bondage and slave in Egypt. So they couldn't really cast too many stones, or at least not very big ones, right? In fact, one could argue they knew it was wrong, and they still did it. 
For, for those who are coming out of the Gentile backgrounds, they grew up in a culture and a society in which, in which the worship of the different gods was tied to these physical, immoral expressions and acts of worship. And where for those who, were, who grew up here in Ephesus, they grew up at one of the centers in the ancient Near East with regards to, to the worship of the false god Artemis. Where this massive temple that was probably the number one of the seven wonders of the world existed there and where Ephesus had this chief identity, this, this chief responsibility of guarding and promoting the worship of Artemis. And the way that that Worship took place in the temple was often through the participants engaging in immorality through the shrine prostitutes, both male and female. But even beyond that, there were also certain celebrations at different times of the year where there would be these open processions of thousands of people who would come from all over the area as they would walk from the temple down to the harbor where they would, in procession, have a picture of Artemis at the front and where they would have the actual physical idols of Artemis in the, in the rear and they would bring all of this to the harbor waters and, and as they went, there was dancing and there was music and there was all kinds of reveling taking place, openly, publicly. Where if you were not participating, you were looked down on. And where they would take this goddess of fertility, whose worship involved immorality, would take and, and, and bathe these idol images in the waters of the harbor in order to cleanse her and to restore her virginity. And then they would revel on their way back to the temple and then into the depths of the nights there would be the most physical graphic descriptions of worship that you can imagine. All openly done publicly, all considered to be consistent with the moral values of the day. These Ephesian believers are coming out of this. This temple was also the center of banking in Ephesus, which was one of the most, if not the most, wealthy cities in that part of the world. There was lots of money coming in and going out. And if you needed to do some banking, you went to the temple. If you needed a loan, you went to the temple. And the exorbitant interest that was charged in the name of the emperor and in the name of Artemis, all of that would then go to the temple. And as you can imagine, they didn't do things as probably openly and just as you might think bankers would probably do back then, or bankers would do today, right, Daniel? And so the temple and its, and its worship was very specifically tied to an expectation of immorality and greed. And this is the setting that these Ephesian believers are coming out of. And so Paul, in, in wanting to 
uh, empower them in their true identity in Jesus Christ in order to enjoy the freedom in Christ from the sins of immorality and greed and to help guard the testimony and witness of this church for the purpose of showing how superior the worth of God is over these other things they have been called to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which they have been called in putting off the old and putting on the new, specifically here with regards to their morality and contentment. But notice in verse 7 that Paul sets this very specifically, not just in terms of, you know, here's who you are, but he says very specifically, do not participate with those who are engaging in these things. He is calling them to live distinctively as the people of God with regards to their morality and with regards to their contentment in a culture and a world that promoted these things so heavily that they were expected and you were counted to be weird if you did not agree. It would be so easy at this point in the sermon. It would be satisfying in a sinful way to say, all right, well, let's now lay into our culture. Because look how bad they are out there. But I don't have to do that. Because you already know that. You know the challenges that we are faced with right now because of the changes and the developments out there. You're aware of that. But you have to be aware also of how what is going on out there is also going on right here in you. And what Paul here is encouraging us to do is to ground our moral lives and to ground our contentment not in contrasting ourselves to the world but in comparing ourselves to Christ. Even Paul who could have so easily just gone off on the wicked culture that they were living in he doesn't. What he does is he sets forth the beauty of Jesus. The one who offered himself to his father as both a living sacrifice as well as a sacrifice who would die. And the apostle Paul reminds us here that Jesus was doing this as an expression of his love for his father and he was doing this as an expression of his love for you. That he would willingly offer himself to die in place of immoral, discontent rebels. In order that your immorality and your discontentment would not be held against you. And in order 
that his contentment and morality would be given to you as a gift. And what the Apostle Paul here, he pulls from this imagery of Leviticus with regards to the, the offering of the sacrifice as a pleasing aroma to the Father as a way of, of also contrasting how those who were familiar with temple idol worship in the ancient Near East would have associated it with the smells of the incense that would be burning. And what he's doing here is he is, is creating this brilliant contrast between living for the false god versus living for the true god. And where the false god is requiring things of you that harm you and things that enslave you, things that guarantee for you that you will not have a flourishing life because you will be one who is within the grips and powers of the darkness of sin. Sin, very specifically, that is the kind of sin that every one of our hearts love to taste. Immorality and greed. What the apostle here sets before you is what is always involved with and going to be involved with loving God and loving your neighbor. And that is living as a sacrifice before the Lord. Which means not pursuing the lust of your hearts with regards to immorality and greed. Setting those things aside, making very purposeful sacrifices Offering yourself as, as one who is willing to let go of lesser earthly things as a way of grasping hold and tasting of better eternal things. And where the, the temptation to engage in these gifts of God in ways that are contrary to what he has taught and in ways that cut him out of the process emphasizing to the people of God that what your heart is desiring when, when you are tempted with that immorality and what your heart is desiring when it comes to that greed are things that you've already been gifted in Christ. And they are things that you can experience tangibly in the appropriate way as the gift of, of sex that God has given is not something that is to be hidden and, and, and put away and, it, and we're not to respond to the world by, by saying, well, abstinence is what God wants. It's enjoying that gift within the confines of where God has given it to be a blessing where it is a means by which you are connected more intimately to a person and, and through that intimacy, more intimately connected to God himself. When you try to cut him away from his gift, his gift is no longer a gift and it becomes a chain that is wrapped around your ankle as you begin to drown in the waters of your own sin. 
And so what I want to encourage you with today is before you get on your high horse and start pointing fingers at the world, look into your own heart. Where are you impure? Where are you greedy? Where are you struggling to not just embrace God's truth outwardly, but to really pursue that truth in the inner workings of the desires of your heart and of your mind? Are there things going on in the world that we need to be aware of? Absolutely. And Paul tells us not to be participants in those things. So, by the way, if you are engaging in the immorality that is being described here, whether that is heterosexually, homosexually, or by yourself, hear very clearly, stop it. Stop it. You are flirting with things that are absolutely and completely destructive of the freedom that is yours in Jesus Christ. It is is an unnecessary re-enslavement of yourself to things that promise you great things that can only provide you guilt and shame. And if you are struggling, please come see me. Because the power of this sin is the power that is found in the isolation of the darkness itself. And we'll take that up, Lord willing, next week. But you become convinced in your, in your mind. You become convinced in your heart because of the shame, because of the guilt, because of the ways that you on your own are not allowing the redemption of Jesus Christ to touch you at the depths of those things. Because of that, you think... Well, if I keep it to myself, I can avoid guilt and shame. I'll work on it on my own. I don't need to to bring someone else into that. That's embarrassing. I can work on this on my own. And the only thing that you will do in that situation is remain isolated. And what you will do is go further and deeper into the problem. What you need. Is to have someone walk beside you and take Christ and apply it to these areas that are leading you to express your idolatry through immorality and greed. And with the opportunities through the internet today, we are saturated. And you don't have to try to approach this on your own. You have a pastor and you have elders. You have friends in this church who have all tasted of Jesus Christ in our own specific particular sins and have seen Jesus work and be powerful and to be gracious and merciful. Even as he says, stop it. He says, stop trying to find satisfaction in things that are empty. 
and start seeking your satisfaction in the things that can actually satisfy. Now, there are issues with it that we are wrestling with even in the PCA when it comes to some of this. Many of you don't know too much about it, so I'm not going to spend very much time on it. I want you to know that I know about it. I know in detail about it, and we will continue to watch things, and we will continue to lead this church according to what the, we believe the scripture teaches. But one of the things that we are not going to do in this church is point fingers at others hypocritically without working in our own hearts with regards to our purity and with regards to our contentment in Christ. Is there confusion right now within Christianity as a whole with regards to the homosexual issue? Absolutely. It is so confused that even now we have side A, side B. If you don't know what those are, don't worry about it. But there is real confusion. And what is needed, according to the Apostle Paul, is the clarity of what it means to have this new identity in Jesus Christ. Because whatever your sins were before you were in Christ, whether they were the really nasty sins that we like to point at, or if they're the acceptable sins that you and I do on a daily basis and don't want to talk about, regardless of what the sin is, that no longer defines who you are in Christ. And as we talked about in our book club last week, it no longer has dominance in your life unless you are the one voluntarily giving it. And so let the freedom of Christ wash over you as you see yourself in Christ and as we see ourselves as this church, as those who have been redeemed from the bondage and slavery of sin and have been, are being built into the temple presence of God where you and I are priests in the household and kingdom of Jesus Christ who are to live as living sacrifices, offering ourselves before the Lord by putting off the old and putting on the new. In the Old Testament, the priests when they were out and about in their normal day activities, wore normal clothes. But when they went into the temple, when they went into the tabernacle, when they went in to perform their duties as a priest, they had to change their clothes. They had to take off their normal everyday clothes, and they had to put on their special priestly clothes. Beloved in Christ... You have been dressed with the holy priestly robes of the righteousness of Christ. That you are not to take off. Because in everything that you do, you are serving as a priest in the temple presence of God here on earth. There is not one aspect of your life that is to be free 
from becoming a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Not just in what you are declared to receive as a gift, but even in what you practically embody on a daily basis. And so let's be aware of the problems and the trends of our culture, but let's be aware of them to to try to help keep that stuff out of us, not so that we can look down our noses at those who are engaging, but in order that we might develop the mercy of Christ for those who are enslaved in such unnecessary darkness and that we might go to them as those who have experienced the freedom and those who are cultivating that freedom and go to them with the pleasing aroma of Jesus Christ who will meet them in the depths of whatever their sin is and redeem them there. And then like us, he will make them alive, he will raise them up, and he will seat them with him and with us in the heavenly places so that even those sinners like us can be the bouquet of the heavenly places here amongst the stench of sin and death in this world. Beloved, a judgment is coming for these things. But let the judge judge. Let us offer his goodness and his grace and his love and his warning but not as an excuse to make ourselves feel better, but truly out of hearts that are broken for slaves of darkness. And so the Apostle Paul tells us here that we're not to even flirt with this stuff, but instead what we are to cultivate is thanksgiving. Do you want to learn to be content with your life morally? Do you want to learn to be content with your life with regards to money and greed? Then cultivate a thankful heart, giving thanks to the Lord for his many good gifts that are in your life that do provide to you an experience of his presence, an experience of his power, and a participation in the privilege of setting the superiority of the manifold perfections of his worth before those who are giving themselves to broken, rusty trinkets when what they could have is a share in the eternal inheritance of the pleasing aroma of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our hypocrisy whether that hypocrisy is, is one of, of knowing the truth but not living it, or whether it is a hypocrisy of dismissing our own failures by pointing out the obvious failures of others. And Lord, forgive us for the legalism that so often dwells within our own hearts that leads us to either dismiss our sin 
or leads us to unnecessarily beat ourselves up over it. Lord, give us the courage to just trust you. To trust you when when it seems so, so difficult because of the darkness and the doubts that are still residing in our hearts and minds. To trust and, and simply trust you when it definitely seems to be the most difficult, the hardest thing of all, especially, Lord, if it requires us to expose ourselves to others in order to receive help and to experience your kindness and your mercy and your love and your grace in a tangible way through the voice, through a hug of another. But Lord, that requires us to be a kind of people who are so enamored with the extravagance of your grace that we're ready to hear from others when they are struggling, even those struggles that we don't like to to talk about in polite company, even those struggles that we don't want to have to to face because, oh, well, those aren't things that, that good Christians are supposed to struggle with. Lord, help us to embrace our theology. a theology that expresses to us the depths of sin, but also a theology that expresses the heights of freedom in Christ. Lord, forgive us of dealing with the matters of morality simply through the law. And instead, Lord, help us to engage them through the empowerment of grace. Lord, if there are any here today that are struggling in their hearts and in their minds with with impure desires, whether that is about sexual matters or whether it is about money matters. Father, help them to know that the power of that lust is broken and that through the cultivation of, of grateful hearts, they can live in the true enjoyment of eternal things even now as we freely sacrifice ourselves, not giving in to the the desires that will lead us away from you and into unnecessary enslavement. And Father, may this church be a church known not only for purity, but, but for grace. A church who... that that knows how to love those who are hurting and those who are broken, those who are struggling and wrestling, who have so tasted of the life of Jesus Christ that we can be the, the pleasing aroma of life to those who are struggling in death. And so, Lord, help us to be a grateful people as we rehearse your greatness, as we rehearse your extravagant grace, as we rehearse our union with Jesus Christ, and as we rehearse our eschatological existence even now as a people in Christ who have passed from death into life, from suffering into glory. In 
may that empower us, Lord, to put sin to death and to live as your holy people in an allegiance to you and not to the idols of our hearts or our culture. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.